This is The Guardian. Just before we begin, this is a podcast series about stalking and some people might find parts of it difficult to listen to. In the last episode, Matthew's victims told me about the day they finally faced him in court. And the moment he was handed a nine-year jail sentence, a sentence he plans to appeal. But there's still someone we haven't heard from. A house, surrounded by electric gates and security cameras. Inside, Donna's waiting for us. Nervous, but friendly. The first thing Matthew's mum does is make us a cup of tea. There's a small, yappy dog racing around the kitchen, gnawing on a chew toy. Anxious about meeting us. I know it's quite stressful. Yeah, because we're not bad people. Yeah, we're really not. We've been through so so much. Life's on hold. Press the pause button, and that's it. It's just, yeah, it's just living in just a nightmare. From the Guardian, I'm Shirin Kale, and you're listening to. Can I tell you a secret? Episode 5. A Mother's Love. Donna Hardy lives with her partner in a detached house in a village near Northwich. The images from the CCTV are beamed onto a screen in the corner of the living room. She has the same eyes as Matthew. I'm struck by the resemblance. Tea made. She takes me into the TV room where we set up. And if there are other people that you think will help us to understand Matthew as well, like friends or yeah. former support workers, love to I don't really know anybody, yeah. to be honest, because she was that isolated mm. that he didn't yeah. have any friends. Yeah. That, and that's the reason why we're probably in the situation that we're in. There are photos of Matthew laid out on a coffee table. I mean, how old is he in this photo? Maybe one or two? Yeah, I would say he was just toddling on that photograph. And this looks like Matthew when he's a teenager, right? Actually, that was Matthew when he was probably about 19, 20, 21, 22. And he's got sunglasses on his head and he's in a tent, so you're obviously on a camping holiday, maybe? He'd gone to... um, That was when he had a girlfriend, his one and only girlfriend, and he'd gone to camp and got wet through and then rang up and said, can we put us up in a hotel because we were breezing? But it was quite a big adventure for him to do that, really, because he'd never sort of, you know, it was his first girlfriend and he'd gone away together. So, how are you doing? Um, Every day is, um, well, you just wake up and think, oh, right, it's, it's hard knowing that my son is where he is. And there's not a lot I can do about that. He's always needed me. I've always been there for him. I feel like I've abandoned him. And how is he doing? 
I know you speak to him on the phone, don't you, almost every yeah, day? Yeah, I do. He's, he, he, he has really bad, bad days and it, it's like a roller coaster. He'll have times when he's been on a slightly even keel and then other days where he's just completely gone to pieces and his anxiety levels are through the roof. But with him being autistic, everything's just height, heightened. So a slamming of a door, you know, the noises, the sounds, uh, it's just too much for him to take sometimes, just too much. I've thought about Matthew so much in the months since I started reporting this story. I even had a dream that I visited him in prison and asked him why he did it. And being here in Donna's house, pictures of Matthew in front of me, it feels a little surreal and overwhelming. Like, I have so many questions, I don't even know where to start. Ideally, of course, I'd ask Matthew myself, but he didn't want to record an interview although he said it was okay if Donna spoke about him. So, if in doubt, I think, start at the beginning. Yeah, he was a good boy, he was. I never had any problems with him. Like Matthew never never had tantrums, he never did. And um, so we always thought, oh, he was quite a good baby. I remember there used to be this Humpty Dumpty and he used to take him his bush chair and he'd say, oh, da da And I, I used to what? And he couldn't say Humpty Dumpty. And I used to oh, I'm going to have to get him that Humpty Dumpty. But he never actually screamed out for it. Like, you see, some pe- some you know some children that they're fixated on something, they actually want it. And um, But no, he, he just, he was just good. He was, a, he was a good little boy, really. What was your home life like? Like, what, what would you do for fun? Well, we, we always, we always, and he used to go fishing with his dad in the yeah, uh, and um, football, because that's his thing, fishing, football, mainly football. But you know, just just Christmases with my, I mean, my mum and dad, my mum absolutely adores Matthew, and he adores her. My dad used to say, oh, look, here they are, ebb and flow. He used to call them, you know, because they, they just used to bounce off one another, and they just. They were just so close. What was the environment like in which Matthew was living? You know, well, was he close to his dad? Yeah, um, Matthew's dad and I got divorced when Matthew was about five, four, five, j- just at the time, really, when he would be starting primary school. So that was a bit of an upheaval for him. Um, and his dad used to see him each weekend and then he'd have him for a couple of uh, nights uh one yeah one night in the week for tea he loved being with his dad as well you know they were pretty close it wasn't wasn't a problem for us at all um until matthew got to about i don't know seven maybe and his dad was involved in another relationship then and um Things started breaking down. The communication between he, me and his dad wasn't as well, as good as it it, it it should it could have been. His dad had another um, they, they had a bit, another baby, and it just became a bit awkward about where you know 
maybe they needed more time together and Matthew was there every weekend and it just started, you know, suddenly, you know, quite subtly because I didn't realise that there was a problem. And his dad told me that he wasn't going to see him. So I said, well, you need to speak to Matthew because you need to have that explained to him. And um, Wow, that is really hard thing to say. Yeah, and he, he did, and um, it was just over the phone, and Matthew was just distraught, no, please no. And, um, yeah, it's quite upsetting. And so that's years before he saw him again. Seven years old, and he's saying to his dad, don't, don't do this, don't do this, and yeah. his dad is saying, yeah. I'm done. Um, yeah. And I can see that it's a hard thing for you to discuss yeah. as well, yeah. It took me a while to um, to get my head round how... See, I don't want to say too much about that because, you know, they might have a different perspective on it that they're not here to defend themselves. Mm. That rejection, to me, in ha looking back now, is maybe had a big... in, in what's happened with him. I've met a number of Matthew's victims and in some cases I've spoken to their families and they're always close. Often Matthew targeted victims from really tight-knit, loving families and tried to break them up. Like when he told Andrea that her mum had been cheating on her dad before she died and he was going to tell him. Or when he told Amber that her dad wasn't her biological dad after all. Or when he tried to break up that couple's wedding day. It's interesting, particularly when you consider that in the 2022 court case, Matthew's defence presented evidence to the judge that his offending stemmed in part from his abandonment issues and history of rejection. So Matthew's dad wasn't in the picture much. Matthew grows up, moves from his small village primary school to a much bigger secondary school. He struggles there. Matthew's autistic, although he doesn't know that at the time. He's not diagnosed until his late teens. Donna just thinks that Matthew's not good at social stuff. And I look back now and I think, how... Because, obviously, he hadn't got his diagnosis. And... You know, there are children that are more outgoing than others and some that put themselves up front and want to be in, in, in charge of everything. And Matthew would just be a little bit, I would say, not as confident. You know, he'd stand back and, um, you know, and I would say, go on, have a go, you know. Looking back now, I think there was a difference. There was a difference, but maybe I just didn't see it at the time. And then, you know, it's only just recently that I, I knew that he'd, he, he, was, he was being bullied in school. And I didn't know because Matthew wasn't going to tell me. Matthew never came home and said to me, I'm having problems at school. He hid he, it from you. Yeah, I think, yeah, he did. I think, and I think he hid it, maybe hid it from me because he may have been too embarrassed to tell me because of what maybe he was being bullied about. Because he was a, he was always quite thin, Matthew, tall. He was, he was, when he was a baby, they said, oh, he's going to be tall, you know. So 
I think he was always a bit self-conscious about that and the way that he looked. And if anybody said anything to him about it, then, you know, that was it. How was he being bullied? What have you learned? See, even now, I don't know the details. I don't know the facts because I'd, it'd be an off-the-cuff remark. And then when, you know, you say, what, what, what happened? He'd just come up. He'd just, you know, well, it'd be maybe about the way that he looked. or. But I honestly didn't know. Did you ever witness any of the bullying? I did witness it once. Um, Matthew was, when he, obviously, when he got to about 17, um, his friend had just passed his test uh, in his car and he said he was going to pick Matthew up with along with another friend. And, you know, I said, well, you know, be careful. And uh, he said, I'm going to wait for him at the end of the drive because he'll be here any minute and he's, you know, going to pick me up. And I was just pottering around the house and uh, I saw a car just pull up and Matthew went to get in it and they just drove off. I was just laughing at him. I thought, why? What has made you do that? And he came back up the drive and I said to him, what What happened then? And he, and he said... I don't know. He said, I was just about to get in the car. And I, and I thought, well, maybe he might turn around and come back, you know, just pranking him. And he didn't. They never came back. They never came back. And he didn't react. He didn't get angry. He didn't get um, upset. He just said, oh, that's just... just he just sort of took it in his stride and I and I would say, but that's not right. What he's done there is, that's cruel what he's just done. And um, he just, well, oh, oh, well, oh, well. It makes you think that that sort of stuff was happening all quite, the time. Yeah, quite regularly. To just, yeah. This bullied schoolboy began spending a lot of his time online. As he was getting older and he was getting beyond, you know, towards the end of his teenage years, it was just becoming more and more apparent that he was becoming more withdrawn. It was getting, um, you know, probably to the point where he was finding it less easier to cope with the more social side of the situation, you know. And it, yeah, it did, it was a red flag because he's, the friends, the few friends that he did have, when they would say, you know, do you want to come here? Do you want to go, no, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I can't be, you know, no, I don't want to. When does he start to retreat into his computer and that online world? Pretty much from, from, from leaving school, yeah. It was, it, it was as if that is, I can't, I can't be with the real people in the real world, but I can online. At the time, it was all, how many friends can you have? I remember that, you how know? many friends. Yeah. Yeah. And it was maybe, that was a little bit of a challenge then for Matthew to get all these friends, but they're not really friends, are they? You know, I think that this is only my opinion because I've had time to think about all this, is that if... Maybe, on, you know, when you're online and you're trying to be friends with somebody and then you're not, and then you're blocked, and then, you know, and, well, why? What have I done? 
And I just used to say to him, well, look, why don't you just come off it? What you're seeing on there, Matthew, I used to say to him, is a totally false world. But he just thought everybody was having a great time. Everybody's having, you know, partying. And because he felt so isolated and so lonely and so not that 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 world is something that I can't be a part of. And I used to always say to him, but you can, but it, you've got to work at it. We've got to work at it. We've got to get the right help. We've got to get the support. I don't know. I think that maybe, you know, the rejection carried on online, maybe. And it was just, um, you know, Matthew trying to get virtual friends because it was difficult for him to have friends, proper socialising with people and, and going out and... And doing all the things that 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 they would that we would do at his age. When did you start to realise that his online behaviour was unusual? Um, well, I get f- people saying, you know, oh, you know, Matthew's, um, you know, causing a bit of trouble with me and my boyfriend, or this, that, and the other, and you know, it was just, it was just little things like that. You know, the, the first, and then, you know, next minute he's he's in court. His first court visit was in 2011, when Matthew received a restraining order for hacking and harassing his former classmate Samantha Boniface. He pretended to be Samantha and started sexting people. Matthew had been diagnosed autistic and also with a learning disability a couple of years before that conviction. Donna thinks he was around 18 at the time. There was no post-diagnostic follow-up. You know, if you had an illness and you'd just been diagnosed with something, you would be followed up, told what this illness means to you. But we didn't have anything. He didn't understand it. I didn't understand it. I had to... um, do all my own research and find out as much as I could to try and think, well, why is this behaviour? I was just crying out for help to so like get somebody to come and, and help, you know, help me, help him to have a life where he felt integrated, where he felt included and involved. Matthew did go on to receive some support from the authorities. He had a succession of social workers. Donna says some were okay, but she felt that most were pretty useless. And he also began working with a specialist forensic support worker in 2013, after his second stalking conviction. Donna says the support worker seemed engaged and genuinely wanted to help Matthew, but for whatever reason, he couldn't get through to him, and she thinks the support ended after a year. Donna's his mum, and I can see how much she cares for him. But things got really difficult between them after Matthew finished college. Donna was aware that Matthew was causing a lot of trouble online. There was a bit of problems with him, disruption, that the house was getting, you know, we were arguing all the time. I didn't know he he was... um, You were arguing about the phones and the social media. Or arguing about things like that. I was doing my absolute best. I'd go and get phones off him and say, no, I'd take it in the garage, get the hammer to it. I would, because I was just so... You know, I just couldn't cope. 
And um, I, we just had this big, bye, you got to go, you got to go. And then I thought, he'll, you know, we'll be back in, in later on. But he wasn't. Aged 18, Matthew moves into his own flat alone. And I just remember walking into this place and thinking, I broke down in tears. And at the time, I should have just think, just, just take him home. But I say to him now, I should have brought you back. And he said, but, I pro- but he probably wouldn't have come because he'd got what he thought was his independence, but it wasn't because I was, I was helping him with his bills, his finances, all that kind of thing. But because he became more and more and more and more isolated, apart from when he saw us, you know, that you know, it was he just went within himself even further. And if I could just turn back the clock and and get you know, just right, you know, let let's 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 get you back home, let's get this sorted. Um but it, it didn't happen like that. Where did you try to go and get help? And I what did they say to you? I went to the GPs. I went, was, was with social services. I'd even say to the police, um, can you not just probably say, right, randomly, I'm just going to call around any time, night or day, and check your phone. Oh, no, we can't do that. No, but you, you'll come and arrest him, lock him, lock him up for a few hours... Then let him go. Surely, let's have some kind of deterrent. And then alongside that, let's have some help here. Let's get to the bottom of this. I've always wanted a total internet ban. But do you know what? Oh, no, that's taken away civil liberties. We're living in this technological age where you can't do that. Well, hang on a minute. Yes, I can. Because if that means keeping my son and other people safe... And that where he's ended up to save him from that, there was so much more that could have been done. I was just just hitting a dead end all the time. I'd get so far and think, oh yeah, this is really great. I mean, I'm, then the door closes. Eventually, one of those doors opened, and Donna felt that she was finally getting somewhere with Matthew's support. It's just the last few months, just before Matthew was sentenced, that we got this fantastic social worker. We just got into this point where, you know, the court case was approaching and all the rest of it. But, you know, supported living was getting put in place for him by that time, you know, where he would be um, be able to uh, live independently, taught skills, how to manage his money, because this was the problem. I was always saying, I'm not going to be around forever. But that help was too late. The court case was just around the corner. Donna tried to keep her son out of jail, but she couldn't. She asks herself all the time whether there wasn't more she could do. Would anything have gotten through to him? And why? Why did he do it? We'll be back after this. Social media breeds comparisons, and these comparisons make us feel bad sometimes. I'm not immune to this. 
I look at other people's Instagrams, their photos, and I don't like how they make me feel. It's just a fleeting moment. It never lasts. And normally it's a sign I need to put my phone away. But I wonder how those feelings hit differently for Matthew. Alone at home, no job, no friends to speak of. Like his bio says, too much time on his hands. It sounds to me that he was really unhappy and very lonely. And he saw these people on social media that seemed to be living perfect lives. And I wonder whether there was a bit of resentment or jealousy there and a desire to show them that he existed and that he was there as well. Yeah, maybe, maybe. You know, Matthew has been, you know, dragged through all the news and and stuff like that. I think what he's done is infantile. I think it's silly. I think what he, he's done is caused a lot of problems between family and, and relationships, but he's not physically harmed anybody. Um, he, he didn't even realise that it was stalking. To Matthew, stalking is going and sitting outside somebody's house, hiding behind uh, corners. And to me, that's probably what I thought as well. Do you think that the mental harm that can be caused from online stalking can be as damaging as being physically stalked or physically hurt? I, um... Yeah, I do. I do think I, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've said to Matthew, you know, what you don't understand is, is that that person doesn't know what you're going to do next. For you, you're just sat in your flat, having a, you know, causing a few, a, a bit of trouble between friends, family, and all right, it might have been a lot, and it's caused a lot of upset. And uh, so I, I have said to him, the, the problem we've got with this is that they didn't know what you were going to do next, so they became fearful. I just think he just got into such a rut that he couldn't break the cycle of it. it was, it's like somebody either likes what, you know, looking at trains every day coming into the station, taking the numbers or, or planes planes or whatever their special interests might be. For Matthew, it was just just winding people up. There would be some people who might listen to this podcast and say, I have Asperger's, I have autism, or I have a loved one that has Asperger's and autism, and they don't behave like this to people. And perhaps Matthew should be punished for what he's done to these women. What would you say to those people? I do. I have, I agree. I, I, I've never thought that, you know, nobody should go unpunished for, for something if, you, if, you, if you've harmed somebody else. But it, it, it's... If a person's being punished because... They, to me, it's like being punished again and again and again. Matthew's been, been punished because he's autistic... And do, do you, you think say he's that... been punished because he's autistic or do you think he's been punished because of, of what he's done? Um, I think it's because they don't know what to do and because the resources aren't, aren't there. The way Donna sees it, social media, which she doesn't use, has made everything worse for Matthew. 
it doesn't matter that it's because he's my son. It, this is my opinion and this is my view for anybody. And, you know, that I do have my opinions on social media, have my opinions of people that use social media in certain ways. You've got to be careful what you put out there, what you show, what you share. You've all, we've got to take some responsibility. There's so much, there's so much of it. So much to toxic stuff out there. If I had a daughter, would I be encouraging her to go and post pictures of herself in a bra and underpants? No, I don't think I would. Because it's there forever. Just keep some things to yourself. Keep some of your personal life personal. I, I, don't, I don't mean anything like that's related to Matthew here, but I just in general terms, I do think that if you're going to lay your life out on social media, then be prepared for backlash. I guess the thing is, a lot of people would say, I should be able to live my life however I want to live my life on social media. And if I want to pose in my bar, my knickers, then I should be able to do that. And... I don't deserve to get backlash or hatred. So I guess what I'm saying to you is, why should they take responsibility for the negative reactions of others? Because really, shouldn't it be on those people to change how they think and they behave towards those women? But we don't live in a perfect world, do we? We don't live in a perfect world, and that's just human nature sometimes. Do you think that some of the women in the court case or that Matthew did this to, do you think they should take responsibility for what they were putting out there on social media? I don't necessarily want to just pick them out. I just mean everybody. We all do. Just keep a little bit back. Sitting there, talking to Donna, with the baby photos on the table in between us, I struggle to reconcile the person she's been describing to me all afternoon with what I've heard from the victims. Donna describes a person who doesn't understand what he's doing or know that it's wrong. It also makes me think of what PC Kevin Anderson told me about how Matthew threw his phone out of the window in August 2019 when he was arrested by Cheshire Police. It sounds to me like you've almost described a person who is very gentle and loving and basically completely harmless is what I'm hearing from you. It's really hard to reconcile that with the knowledge that I have, if I'm going to be honest with you, of some of the stuff that he did and he wrote. I've seen messages that he sent to people that are really frightening and scary. You know, like, I'm going to get you... No one's ever going to stop me, you know, like calling some of them a lot, a lot, a lot and, and really creating a lot of suffering. But isn't that the sort of thing that gets said online every single day? I mean, I haven't been on social media for a long time. I just, I'm just going on what other people tell me. Oh, God, you should have seen what, what was put on there and, you know, and who said this to what and, oh, my God, so... It's out there. It's every day. It's life. It's every day. If you want to be involved in that, carry on on there. Stay on there. If you don't, come off it. This is a really common view. I've had it 
often in my reporting. I'm thinking of when some of Abby's family blamed her for Matthew's stalking by saying she put too much of her life online. Or when Matthew's victims went to the police and the response was sometimes dismissive. Just come off social media if you want it to stop. In addition to blaming Matthew's victims, this advice didn't actually work. Blocking him often seemed to make things worse. And it's hard not to think that this attitude is partly the reason that Matthew's stalking went on for such a long time. But PC Kevin didn't feel that way. So in January 2022, Matthew found himself at Chester Crown Court. There was quite a lot of people there that day and I was quite shocked at that because I was there with my partner and we just sat quietly waiting for to go into into the court. And, you know, there's this cafeteria there and it's like a day out. People laughing and joking and the police officer was in there laughing and joking. I don't know how you're supposed to be in that kind of environment. I just thought, is this appropriate? And those were the women in the court case that were laughing and joking? Yeah. I just thought everybody would be sort of quite with subdued, you know, and, um, yeah, like, totally unexpected. I just want to pause for a second here, because, again, this idea victims are expected to behave in a certain way. I've heard it many times before in other stories I've worked on. It's why people don't believe rape victims who go on to have one-night stands or domestic violence victims who go back to their abusers. But the thing is, and this is what the research says, trauma manifests differently. There is no model victim and no right way to behave. What did you think of the Victim impact statements, did they leave an impression on you? Um, yeah, yeah, they did, you know, they did, yeah, they did. Um, don't know quite what to say. Um, um, it, it was, it was upsetting. Yeah, it's upsetting. Um, how did it feel when you heard that very long sentence you know I just well I just I just I couldn't look I couldn't believe it really it was um yeah shocking quite shocking and do you feel that the judge took into sufficient consideration Matthew's autism and his learning difficulties no I don't no, I don't. Do you think it had hit you before quite how serious it had got? You know, the amount of messages and the degree of harm that was caused to some of these women. When you say degree of harm, what what would you say that harm was? I'm throwing it back at you now. Oh, you can throw it right back at me. As you know, I've spoken to some of these women and they tell me about being on antidepressants for many years as a result of Matthew's messaging and calling. They tell me about 
crying with fear, serious issues in their families, you know, Matthew trying to break up relationships, Matthew telling people that their partners were cheating on them. And I don't use this word lightly, but really terrorised over a number of years by Matthew. And I wonder whether listening to those victim impact statements, you realised at I that point. I didn't get any of that with the victim impact statements. I didn't hear them say any of that. But don't forget, I was sat there petrified as well, you know, so a lot of it, I was, I was just, you know, I was probably not hearing what, you know, what, what, but I, I find it very difficult to remove myself from the fact that I know he wouldn't have harmed them. But he did harm them, didn't he, mentally? Yeah, that's what I, mean, I meant, you know, any kind of physical harm or threatening for him to, you know, to, to do anything like that. Did you ever read any of the messages that Matthew was sending to these women? Did you ever look through them? Um, I think I had, yeah. I think, uh, you know, I'd never, I'd never seen... I'd not really seen anything threatening or anything like that. If someone was to magic up a book right now and it had all the messages that Matthew had sent to the women, would you want to read it? No, I wouldn't. Because I'd, even if it wasn't Matthew or anybody, if it was anybody... What what am I going to gain from that? <sighs> it might help you to understand, maybe. And But you're talking to me like now that I don't understand. You're talking to me like I don't understand, and I do understand, you know, because life's full of knocks. Life's full of things that happen to you. So, yeah, I'm not... I, I, do, I do understand... But I don't have to see every written detail of every word to understand. That's what I'm saying, because I, I, I get it. As I sit in Donna's house and watch the images from the CCTV cameras flicker, I realise that Donna has more in common with Matthew's victims than I first thought. I noticed that you have security cameras. Yeah, we put them in because we had damage done to our property because somebody put something online about Matthew. And Matthew didn't hasn't lived here for 12 years, but didn't stop them from coming round and doing, you know, damage to the property and to our vehicles and, and stuff like that when we were been away on holiday because the neighbour had walked past and seen the windows smashed. I know what it's like to be terrorised... I do know what it's like to be terrorised because I've been there and I've been on the receiving end of it. When my partner's not here, well, I don't go to bed. I sleep, I sleep down, I sleep downstairs. You sleep downstairs because you're too scared to go to bed when he's not here. Yeah. Wow. I know one time one per person was arrested because he was threatening to burn the house down. So when you're telling me, when when you're talking to me about this thing, I find I feel like I I I you know I I. I do know. You have being, empathy for them. You understand what that's like. I I do. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, but it, it's it's difficult because we're all different and we all handle things differently. Do you feel that Matthew is a victim in all of this, and how so? He is 
as much he, he he is part of it he is part you know he didn't ask to be born with autism he didn't i think we're all partly victims in, in this we've all we've all suffered i think you definitely seem to have suffered in this donna mm. i but i don't want to be a victim i just want things to be different. I want things to be, you know, better for all of us, for everybody. Donna, you didn't need to, to meet me and talk to me and I'm really grateful that you did, so thank you. I was so reluctant to come and for you to come and do this. I hope I haven't upset anybody. I hope I haven't, you know, um, I hope I've tried to explain things the best way, the way I feel, the way I think um, about what's happened. You know, we, I, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for any of it. I'm no, just an ordinary, yeah. everyday person just trying to get through life. We did get in contact with Matthew's dad, but he declined to speak with us. In the final episode, Matthew's in prison, but what happens when he gets out? You've been listening to Can I Tell You a Secret? Episode 6 is ready to listen to straight away. If you need any support around stalking and harassment, you can get in touch with the Susie Lamplew Trust or call the National Stalking Helpline on 0808 802 0300. Further information can be found on The Guardian's podcast page. We'd like to thank the National Autistic Society and Autism Rights Group Highland for all their help and advice on this series. This is a podcast series from The Guardian. It was made by me, Shirin Kale. The producer is Lucy Hoff. Original music and sound design is by Axel Coutier. The executive producers are Charlotte Pritchard and India Rackerson. The commissioning editor is Nicole Jackson. If you're following the series, do subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks. This is The Guardian.